You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome. My name is Tom Carver. I'm a vice president at Carnegie Endowment. And in this podcast, we're going to be discussing the latest flare-up in the disputed region of Kashmir, in which 18 Indian soldiers were killed recently. I'm very pleased to have with me George Perkovich, vice president of our nuclear policy program, and Toby Dalton, co-director of the program. And they've just released a book called Not War, Not Peace, Motivating Pakistan to Prevent Cross-Border Terrorism. Incredibly timely book, as it looks precisely at this sort of issue of cross-border attacks between Pakistan and India, how to prevent them from escalating into the much more nightmarish situation of a war between these two countries. So maybe we could just start, George, with um, this particular attack and give us some background as to why it happened and why Kashmir continues to be this trigger point between the two. Well, I mean, Kashmir's a trigger point because from the very beginning of, in 1947, the creation of independent India and Pakistan, it was disputed to which Kashmir would uh, rightfully go, especially the Kashmir Valley, whose population is majority Muslim. So there was basically a war fought in 47 and 48 over this. There was another war in 65 that was part of, you know, partly related to this. There was a conflict in 1999, the Cargill conflict. So it's it's been a, a uh, deeply contentious, volatile issue all along. It heated up uh, at least in the last year, I would say actually two years ago, there was shelling across the line of control, and the new government in India, Narendra Modi's government, uh, vowed that it would be tougher, and so it, it actually responded to the shelling from Pakistan in what they called a disproportionate way, and that kind of tipped off that, that things might be different. Uh, but in all cases, the Indian government basically was saying um, Pakistan has no role. There will be no negotiations with Pakistan over this. And, in fact, there won't be negotiations with the separatist elements in Kashmir, that this was a problem that India government would just manage on its own, um, that it was a development issue, it wasn't a political issue. So, in a way, that becomes a provocation for people to say, oh, yeah, you think you can solve this without us. And I think, you know, that that became the Pakistani mindset, uh, both of militants in Pakistan, and I would argue, uh, though we will need to see more evidence, of the ISI, the intelligence service in Pakistan, that they weren't going to just let the Indians uh, push them around and, you know, repress an uprising in, in uh, Kashmir. There was going to be an action. And you, you talk about the, the difference that the Modi government has made, at least in, in kind of perceptions. Uh, on the Pakistan side, Toby, how, how, what sort of reaction has the Modi government's utterances and uh, declarations and protests and so forth had? I think you see a couple different things. On, in some sense, there's more concern in Pakistan and you know, trying to highlight this offensive uh, and uh, dangerous rhetoric that comes from India and you know, trying to internationalize uh, the issue by pointing out uh, that rhetoric and, and, and highlighting that this is a danger that comes not from Pakistan but, in fact, from, from India uh, and how India is responding in, in Kashmir. Um, but I think you've also seen much more careful preparation in Pakistan now to deal with 
the consequences of attacks like this. And so um, part of the problem that the Indian government confronts, and you see this now in reporting uh, from India as, as the government there contemplates how uh, to you know, potentially retaliate uh, against this attack, that the Pakistan military is dug in uh, and they have fortified their positions uh, along the line of control. And so uh, it's much harder for India to calibrate how to use military tools uh, to, to respond to this. Um, and so what you see is this kind of twofold approach in, in Pakistan, using the military on the one hand, uh, and then also using India's own actions to try to make an equivalence that uh, what India is doing in Kashmir is no different than perhaps what Pakistan is, is accused of, of doing in Balochistan, violating human rights and so forth, uh, and therefore that um, Pakistan's cause uh, of supporting Kashmiri uh, separatism or freedom uh, is, is a legitimate cause. So you see this, this dual approach. And do you think they're trying to get the Indians to respond militarily? I mean, is that what they want, is some sort of military response to say, hey, look, we told you so, the Indians are like this all along? I'm not sure it's so much that they're trying to provoke a military response, although I think that is a consequence of this, this strategy that isn't necessarily damaging for Pakistan in terms of this effort to internationalize it. Um, but I think it's more the case that uh, Pakistan continues to at least tolerate, if not support, groups that attack India in order to remind India that there is no solution to the Kashmir issue without Pakistan. Uh, and so for Pakistan, um, you know, part of the reason that they have settled on this strategy is that it does uh, make things difficult for, for India. Um, conversely, and, and perhaps legitimately, Pakistanis will also say that, look, whenever we want to have talks about Kashmir and there is no violence, then the Indians say, well, look, what's the problem? There is no violence. Uh, wh why should we even talk about it? So um, there is a chicken and egg problem there when it comes to, to the violence and the potential solution of it. And just before we get on to the kind of potential solutions or otherwise, I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book is the incredible pressure on the Indian military from the people, from the conservatives and so forth to respond to these sort of reprisals. Maybe you could just talk a bit about that. And, and obviously the biggest attack was in Mumbai and they didn't respond then. I mean, does it each time one of these things happen get it, make it more likely that they're going to respond? Each time one of these attacks happens, sure, it creates more of a feeling of frustration, which is entirely understandable. I mean, you know, look, these people should be punished. We, we, we need to make them pay. This is an outrage. It is an outrage. And, and yet, then each time the government kind of calculates well, what the options really are and what the risks and potential benefits are, and they conclude um, don't get uh, sucked in because things could get worse. And in, in, in many cases, when you talk to people privately, they look at how the U.S. reacted after 9-11 and you say, talk about strategic mistakes. I mean, the U.S. acted firmly, we made people pay, but that was the war in Afghanistan. It's still going on and badly. The war in Iraq uh, that deposed Saddam Hussein, but so far hasn't uh, gone that well and has produced ISIS and everything else. And they look and they say, okay, you guys acted decisively militarily, but uh, didn't turn out that well. And so in India, we're going to avoid that. But politically and emotionally, that's deeply dissatisfying. And, and one of the challenges now is that Modi came along and said, under me, it'll be different. Mm. Under me, we will act. Right. And people welcome that. So there's an expectation. And so there is an expectation that they'll do something in a, in a violent way that will relieve some of the 
very understandable desire. And it, it is outrageous, the, the terrorism that, that keeps coming chronically from Pakistan. And, and so the, the sense that there isn't a way, a simple way to deal with it, punish it, make it stop is, is deeply frustrating. But I think I would argue that's kind of the reality. There isn't a simple way right. to make it stop. And one of the things that hasn't been much remarked upon is that the attack this weekend, as well as one on an air base at Patankot in, in January, these were attacks on military installations. Mm. So Mumbai was an attack on, on hotels and a Jewish center and the train station, civilian targets, which in our research found, we found that that deeply upset many in Pakistan. So the mm. Pakistanis were appalled by that and were appalled to be associated with it. And one of the things that's interesting, you look at these recent attacks on military facilities, smaller number of casualties, but some people would say they're legitimate targets, they're not going after civilians. And that makes it that much harder for India to rally the international community to say this is an outrageous act of terrorism right. um, because they were on, they were on uh, installations. But presumably, equally, enrages the Indian military even more. Makes the Indian military even more angry, exactly. And then there will be, I'm sure in private, there's a back and forth about, like, how do these guys keep getting on to military installations? Like, what's mm. the deal with the security? Mm. But, but internally, you've got to now avenge your own who have uh, fallen. And so that will be the tension of the military saying we've got to do something and the political leadership looking for a way that will go right, where the downside isn't, uh, isn't potentially quite severe. And that points to more limited operations, maybe covert, clandestine, some more or less symbolic strikes that have a lesser chance of escalating. I would just add here, actually, that uh, part of this tension between, you know, how do you respond to this then becomes a blame game. And, you know, who's to blame for this? There was, you know, intelligence that suggested that this was going to be a target and that there were, you know, uh, jihadists crossing the border. And so, you know, why was this facility not better protected given that this intelligence uh, existed? Why is it that the Indian Army and the Indian Air Force you know, in 2008 and again today, don't seem to have ready options for responding to these kind of attacks. Uh, is that because they have not been given the equipment to do it, that they don't have the support to do it, uh, or that there are institutional problems within the mm -hmm. you know, various military services? Um, so we'll, we're likely to see now over the next several weeks finger-pointing in India, you know, the civilians and the military pointing at each other and amongst themselves about, you know, why is it that this, this continues to happen? Why is it that we've not found effective ways either to stop it in terms of you know, better border security or things like, or better intelligence, or that we don't have better options to respond to it that would, you know, potentially deter such attacks in the right. future. Well, so let, let's turn and look at some of the potential solutions or ways out of this kind of uh, spiral. And, and obviously that's, I guess, the main reason why you wrote this book. And you call it Not War, Not Peace. Uh, what do you mean by that? Can you just explain that a bit more? The, the title uh, has a question mark in it, so it's right. not war, uh, and by that we mean that uh, it's clear that the conditions that exist in South Asia, and in particular the presence of nuclear weapons um, you know, possessed by both India and Pakistan, makes major conventional war inconceivable. Uh, it's, it's too dangerous. Both sides recognize it. Um, if nuclear weapons do anything, they are supposed to deter uh, major conventional war or the, the use of nuclear weapons by uh, an opponent. And so it's clear that there's no 
conflictual solution to the problems in South Asia, so not war. And that's recognized, you think, by both sides? I think that's recognized by both sides. Um, there's a question mark after not peace, um, because it's clear that just as not war is, is not a solution, there's not a lot of support or sustained support uh, in either country for a peace process. There are a number of uh, actors in both states uh, that uh, don't, don't support uh, you know, the bargaining and the concessions that would be uh, necessary uh, for peace. Uh, many people argue that in Pakistan, the military derives its authority and the justification for the uh, excessive use of, of state resources because it has this external enemy, India, and that if those conflicts are resolved, then the rationale for the Pakistan military to uh, you know, continue to have this uh, place in, in Pakistani society goes away. And I think in India, you have you know, people who say, well, India is, is a big state. Why should we, you know, we should, we should look uh, at, at Pakistan in the rearview mirror. We should mm -hmm. leave Pakistan behind. Uh, this isn't a Pakistani problem. This is something that we can solve. And so the lack of sustained support for a peace process does leave this question. If it's not war and it's not peace, then, then what? You know, what, what are the other options that exist at this point? That sounds pretty bleak. I mean, so, yeah, so in your, is, is uh, there a middle course between war and peace? I mean, is there something that you can illuminate? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, I mean, that, in a sense, we we wish the book had a happier ending and that we could <laughs> see the happier ending of this story. But we could see a lot worse endings. And so in a, in, in a sense, that's why we wrote the book, is that we were especially worried in 2013, 2014, there was this, this kind of pounding, uh, especially in, in India, for a more decisive military action, uh, you know, uh, answer mm. for Pakistan. And it was that what we looked at and we thought, okay, this could go really badly. And so as bad as kind of chronic conflict at a, at a low level is, Thinking that you're going to decisively resolve it by, for example, a major army campaign in Pakistan, that, that really can lead to nuclear war, which is a really bad answer and much worse than this kind of you know, unhappy ending that we've been describing. So what we try to do are analyze the options that, that Indians could hope would find kind of a military solution to really finally get the Pakistanis to end terrorism, go after it, which the Pakistanis should do, but, right. but how do you make them do it? So we looked at, are there military options to really make them do it? And what we came up with is um, that, that, that right now, given the capabilities India has and the capabilities Pakistan has, it's hard to see the military campaign that would give you confidence that you could really get the Pakistanis to change their behavior without totally unwelcome risks of escalation or things going wrong that would leave India much worse off. But you talk somewhere, I'm just trying to find it here, but you talk, you have this phrase of, of, of compel, compulsion or... Mm -hmm. Is, yeah, non-violent compellence compellence is totally that's a, yeah. awkward phrase. Yeah. Um, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, that suggests that there are some levers that could be pulled to try to at least de-escalate some of this. We, we focused our analysis more on the military options because that's where Indian analysts tend to, to focus. But we did want to include the idea that there are other non-violent, non-military means of trying to motivate uh, or compel states to, to take actions. Uh, and in this case, it's clear that India has a lot more soft power 
than Pakistan. Uh, its economy is growing. You have countries and companies that want to do business in India, uh, and that is uh, a lever that, that India has. Um, India has you know, a, a great movie industry. Um, it could use social media uh, as, a, as a way to uh, try to focus the international community's attention on the things that Pakistan, uh, you know, the, the perception that Pakistan is supporting groups that attack uh, India. Um, these kinds of, of levers of soft power haven't really been thought about in a strategic way. Um, there's no enunciation of, uh, uh, you know, a, a way to gather all of these things together into something that is, um, you know, more than the sum of its parts that could actually be a strategy uh, of, of compellence, of, of increasing the pressure on Pakistan and the international community to such a point that it would force a decision about whether to continue uh, to approach this problem um, of, of cross-border terrorism in the way that it has, uh, or whether it could uh, demobilize or pacify the groups that, that are attacking India and, you know, for Pakistan, find other ways to, to contest uh, its, its uh, uh, you know, concerns in, in Kashmir with India. So we, we tried to think about that in a way. And, and some people have interpreted it as, oh, well, that's clearly the answer. If the military isn't the answer, well, then this, is, this has to be the answer. And that's not actually what we're saying. We're saying that this is something that deserves more thought, um, that really we haven't seen uh, in India this kind of strategy contemplated, and so it's something that, that, that should be done. So one of the thoughts to just build on what Toby said was, you've got all of these brilliant Indians in India in the diaspora who worked for McKinsey, all these different consulting firms. If you, you know, you thought about, you know, for a relatively little amount of money compared to buying a plane, you could say, look, we're going to commission you to figure out, you know, 10 different brilliant ways that we could bring Pakistan to its knees or weaken Pakistan non-kinetically. You could, you, you could get some very interesting uh, answers for that and that, that, would, that would alarm, that we know would alarm the Pakistani establishment, rather than kind of just doing the typical thing is, okay, we'll build up our air force, we'll build up our army. Um, and so that was the idea of that chapter, as Toby said, to kind of provoke some, some different thinking that plays to India's inherent strengths and Pakistan's inherent weaknesses. So finally looking out, do you see, do you, I mean, that's a hard question, easy question to ask, hard to answer, but I mean, do you feel that this situation is going to deteriorate, continue to deteriorate, or stay still, or improve? I mean, where do you feel that it's going to go? Yeah, I, I keep getting drawn to parallels with the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic over the last 10 years or 20 years. And and I there are a lot of differences between the two situations, but, but basically the kind of institutional, institutionally conflicting interests, the ideology that when, when you get, uh, especially in India, a, a more mobilized and powerful ideological politics that's of a um, communal nature, um, religious, makes it that much harder to then ultimately uh, deal, and it makes the people on the other side convinced that they won't be seen as as people, as agents who deserve a voice and and 
and accommodation. It becomes identity clashes, which I think right. we've had more and more in Israel, you know, over the last 20 years. And so you get farther away from uh, a, a solution. And, and, but the problem, you know, in, in, in Israel, it's about creating two states. In Indian Pakistan, there already are two states. And so, you know, the issue is, can, can you have peace with them? And I think given these trends and the dominance of the Pakistani military and the fact that that military has nuclear weapons, so it's going to be very hard to dislodge them, I, it seems to me we're just going to have this kind of grinding, um, chronic uh, conflict that hopefully and that all of our attention should be on to keep it from, from getting terminal. Great. Thank you, George and Toby, very much. Thank you.